Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Himalaya. Hey, Betsy, can I have permission to maybe give away $20,000 of our joint money in the interests of something we really believe in, teaching economics? I'm not really sure I like that idea, but I do love teaching economics. So let me see where you're going to go with this. Great. So, Naz, I've got a coin right here, and here's an offer. If I flip heads, I'll give you $20,000. If I flip tails, then you have to give me $20,000. Do you want that deal? $20,000 is a lot of money for me to lose. Yeah, but you could also win $20,000, and the chances of you winning are just as big as the chances that you have to pay me $20,000. Yeah, but it feels like a bit too big of a risk, you know? I'm with you, Naz. I mean, a $20,000 bet makes me uneasy. It's a lot of risk, and in this case, for no good reason. Yeah. We make decisions where there's risk and uncertainty every day. Sometimes they're big decisions, such as about your career, like should you major in economics or chemistry or something else? And sometimes they're smaller daily decisions, like should you take an umbrella to work today? These are just some of the many decisions we have to make which involve uncertainty. And decisions involving uncertainty is our topic for this week's Think Like an Economist with me, Betsy Stevenson. And I'm Justin Wolfers. You're listening to the podcast, which teaches you the super tools of economics to turbocharge your decision making, including those you're pretty uncertain about. Nestran Tavakoli Farah is with us. You know, I like to think I'm into taking risks, but Justin, your offer has made me reconsider that. So I'm having a little bit of an identity crisis right now. Well, Naz, I don't want you to worry too much right now. You see, the bet I offered you is called a fair bet. A fair bet's a gamble which, on average, will leave you with the same amount of money. If you played that game with me hundreds of times, we'd both likely end up winning half the time, losing half the time. So we'd each end up with the same amount of money that we had at the beginning. But you and Betsy might have had a few heart attacks along the way. The point is that a fair bet takes what you have and just adds risk to it. Any risk that you face, we can boil it down to two things, the probabilities and the payoffs. In the bet I offered you, the probability you won $20,000 was 50% and the probability you lost was 50%. So it looks like the probability of winning and losing cancel each other out. So on average, you'd end up with no more money. Trying to figure out how much more money you have is something that economists have a specific term for. It's called expected value. And expected value is how much you can expect in dollar terms. For all of the different outcomes, you add up the probability of that outcome times its value. In the case of the bet Justin offered you, Naz, the expected value is zero. In other words, you could lose 20000 with a 50% chance and gain 20000 with a 50% chance. So on average, you get nothing. Nothing but a lot of risk, that is. Remember to assess any risk. We need the probabilities and the payoffs. But here's the thing. The payoffs you should think about, it's not just the dollar amount. 
the payoffs you should really focus on are how you feel and how you'd experience each outcome. Naz, you told me you didn't want to take my bet, even though it was a fair bet. Yeah, $20,000 is a lot of money for me to lose. If I was going to lose $20,000, then I wouldn't be able to pay my rent for the year. And there's a lot of other really essential things that I just wouldn't be able to buy anymore. So this is a really important point about risk. For most people, if your consumption has to fall because you've lost that amount of money, you're giving up really important dollars that are necessary. The money you gain is less valuable to you because maybe you're going to be able to spend that on things that are a little bit more optional to your lifestyle. Economists use the term utility to describe your level of well-being. So when it comes to risk, instead of thinking about the money you gain or lose, you want to focus on your utility because that's what really matters. So you want to think about whether your average level of well-being or utility stands to rise if you take this bet or whether it'll fall. So what we're trying to say is that the money I could lose is going to be a really big deal for my quality of life. But the money that I might gain isn't necessarily going to add that much to my quality of life. Naz, that's exactly right. We call this concept diminishing marginal utility. So we just talked about the fact that utility is how well off you are. Well, marginal, think about the marginal principle. It's about how much extra utility you're going to get from the next dollar you earn. And diminishing says the more dollars you get, each additional dollar gives you less and less additional utility. In fact, research shows that on average, people have diminishing marginal utility. You still enjoy each extra dollar, but you enjoy it less than those earlier dollars that were vital for keeping a roof over your head, say. Naz, to think about what this means for the bet Justin offered you, you may not be able to pay your rent if you lost $20,000, but if you gain $20,000, you might just put it into your savings or go out to eat more. And so diminishing marginal utility, focusing on what happens to your well-being rather than your bank account, explains why we're risk-averse. It's another way of saying people dislike uncertainty. There's always risk when you don't know the outcome of something with certainty. So it sounds like you're saying that you're better off avoiding fair bets. I think that's right. A risk-averse person doesn't accept fair bets because a fair bet just takes that current level of wealth and adds uncertainty to it. We're talking a lot about risk, but we can't avoid all risks either. I mean, we've got to take chances in life if we want to live well. And there's just so many examples of this. Applying for a job or telling someone our feelings about them or studying for exams that could really transform our lives. These are all things that could not pan out. But if they do, then they'll really add to our lives. That's true. And we also got to accept some risks with more mundane everyday decisions. When you eat out at a restaurant, there's a risk you could get food poisoning. Whenever you drink water, there's a risk it might be contaminated. Of course we want to minimize risks, but we don't want to eliminate risks. We need to think about costs and benefits so that we take risks only when they're worth it, when that risk is going to leave us better off. That's why it's worth taking calculated risks. And that's when you've assessed if the rewards of an outcome are bigger than its risks. We call this the risk-reward trade-off, and what it tells us is you're better off taking a risk if it comes with a sufficiently high reward that it raises your average or expected utility. This sounds like you're using the cost-benefit principle. So in other words, when you're looking at the risk-reward trade-off, you should refuse a bet if the costs are more than the benefits. And the costs and benefits aren't just about money, they're also about your well-being. 
exactly. And when you think about the risk-reward trade-off in a fair bet, it's all risk and no reward. Now we can find out how much you really dislike risk. Justin offered you a bet, heads you win 20,000, tails you lose 20,000. Well, that's a terrible bet because it's all risk, no reward. But what if he offered you a bet where if you get heads, you win $30,000, and if tails, you'll still lose 20,000? Would you take that bet? Mm, $20,000 is still a lot of money to lose, though. And winning $30,000 doesn't feel like enough for me to risk it. Okay, Naz, what if it's heads, you win $40,000, and tails, you still owe me $20,000? $40,000 still isn't enough of a reward. Naz, and this one's just for economic science. I'll give you $60,000 if it's heads, tails, you owe me $20,000. You in? I may start to consider it if for heads, you pay me $100,000. You're either a great negotiator or really (laughs) risk averse. The point here is that when there's enough of a reward, you are willing to take the risk. That's why we economists always talk about a risk-reward trade-off. Everyone's going to answer this question differently because it's going to depend on their level of risk aversion. And that has a lot to do with their own personal diminishing marginal utility of the extra money. Naz, you sound like you're pretty risk averse here, but I think that's because this is digging into what you'd use to pay your rent. Betsy's making a really important point. It says that you can't just go to one of your friends and ask them if you should take on some particular risk. And that's because they don't know your attitudes, your perspectives, your psychological makeup and your life circumstances. The only one who knows all of that is you. And so the only one who knows whether this is a risk that makes sense for you is you. And that's why you need to arm yourself with a good understanding of risk and uncertainty. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is making clear to me that I'm more risk averse than I thought. However, there are strategies we can use to reduce the amount of risk we take on. And what's cool is that we can apply these to many areas of our lives. So it's not just about our business or financial decisions. Our first strategy is something called risk spreading, which is when we break a big risk up into smaller risks, which can then be spread over many people. So a good example is around starting your own business. A lot of people want to do it. But it can be really risky. So let's say you're starting a business. Maybe it's an idea for an app and you need some developers and designers to work on it. You've looked into the numbers and the data and it'll cost you $200,000 to hire these people and to cover the expenses for developing the app. There's a 50% chance it'll be successful and give you a return in the near future of $400,000. And there's also a 50% chance the app won't be a success and you'll have lost the $200,000 you poured into it. 
And Naz, if I know you at all well, that's the sort of risk you feel that you don't want to take on. But there is something you can do, and that's to take on shareholders who each put in a smaller amount of money into the app. Say they each put in $1,000. If the app makes a return, they make a return. And if the app isn't a success, well, 1000 bucks just isn't that much to lose. By simply breaking a big bet into many smaller bets, you can transform a risk that's too much for any one person to take on to one that makes sense for people to take on if they're sharing it. This comes out of diminishing marginal utility. Naz, when you were thinking about taking on a bet, or let's call it an investment, that potentially meant losing $20,000 with a chance to win $60,000, you didn't want to do it. But what if instead it was a 50% chance of losing $200 with a 50% chance of winning $600? I'd probably take that on. If I lost the bet, I wouldn't have to move house or anything. Right. The problem is that with a big risk, the loss digs deep into dollars that have a very high marginal utility for you. Diminishing marginal utility means that the last dollar you spent didn't generate as much utility for you as the first dollar you spent. So big losses get us down to dollars that are really important to us in terms of our well-being. Let's push this logic. What if it was a bet with a 50% chance of losing $2 versus a 50% chance of winning $6? That sounds like a pretty good deal. So when you break up big risks into small risks, you can take a lot of little gambles and make yourself better off without risking a huge loss that leaves you destitute. When the stakes are high, most people want to make risk-averse choices. But if instead they can spread the risk among a lot of people, that might really help. If the stakes are small, you don't tend to feel as risk-averse. The second way we can reduce risk is through diversification, which is about combining many smaller risks which aren't very closely related. Oh, yeah. Naz, this is something we university professors do with our exams. If you were studying for an econ exam, Naz, would you prefer one that had five true or false questions or one that had 50 true or false questions? Well, the paper with the five questions, the problem is if you mess one up, then you really can't mess the other four up. However, if there's 50 questions, then you can get a few wrong and you can still do pretty well on the paper. So each question carries less weight. The big picture here is when we diversify, we're basically reducing our reliance on a single question or a single bet or a single stock in our portfolio. And as a result, the overall outcome is less risky. Now, this rings a bell from one of our macro episodes about investing. Right. We've always advised our listeners to put their money into a diversified portfolio, which is exactly what Justin and I do, instead of playing the stock market game and trying to predict a few big winners. When you're trying to diversify, one of the important things to remember is that you get the benefits when you take on risks that are unrelated to each other. So if you want to diversify, don't buy 10 pharmaceutical stocks. Because if something bad happened to the pharma sector, you'd still lose all your cash. Instead, you want to buy a whole lot of different stocks in different industries that face different risks. That's why we suggest you put your money into index funds, such as a fund that buys shares from all the companies on, say, the S&P 500 index. With index funds, you get a diversified portfolio with low risk. We see it in other areas of our lives, too. If you're wearing a T-shirt under your sweatshirt and you've also got a waterproof coat with you, then... You're ready if the weather gets warmer or if it starts raining, you've got a diversified clothing portfolio. Our third strategy for reducing our risk is to take out insurance. When you buy insurance, the company's going to promise to compensate you if something bad happens. But in return, you have to give something up for sure 
And that's the price of the insurance. And in insurance markets, that price is called a premium. Now, if you're risk averse, you should buy actuarially fair insurance. What that means is that's an insurance policy which, on average, pays out as much in compensation as it receives in premiums. Okay, but most insurance isn't actuarially fair, though. In reality, the insurance company has to take in more money in premiums than what they're going to pay out for the bad things that are insured. They need to pay their employees, and they probably want to make a profit. But that's going to create a dilemma for you. Buying insurance is going to lower your risk, but because the insurance isn't actuarially fair, you're going to end up paying more for insurance than you'll get back on average. So insurance is another example of a risk-reward trade-off. Insurance is likely to be worth it the closer it is to being actuarially fair, and it's more likely to be worth it the more risk-averse you are and the larger the stakes that are involved. There's really important advice coming out of this. Most of the time, insurance for small things like small appliances just doesn't actually make sense. Companies are going to offer you extended warranties, but typically at prices that are very far from being actuarially fair. In other words, if you paid all those premiums for small appliances into a bank account, instead of paying for the insurance, you'd probably be able to pay for the repair or replacement yourself and still have money left over. This is an example with extended warranties where we've got really small dollar stakes. These are losses that you can afford to bear without having too much of an effect on your well-being. But realize you need to consider your own personal risk because sometimes that will mean that the insurance is a better or worse deal for you. For example, I buy AppleCare for my phone because I have a 100% chance of smashing the screen. That That's really true. I do. So even though it's small dollars, the insurance is even better than actuarially fair since what I pay in insurance is less than what I'd pay to replace the screen without insurance. It's ridiculous how much you smash phones. It's not a risk. It's a certainty. <laughs> But with most other appliances, the risk isn't about your phone dropping behavior. So I stand by my advice for other things. You want to avoid this small dollar insurance. Our fourth strategy for lowering risk is hedging, which is another way of saying offsetting your risks. Hedging is one of those words that makes me tune out. Oh, my God, I literally tuned out when you started saying that because Hedging doesn't sound like it applies to life, but it actually really does. Hedging's when you acquire an offsetting risk. A hedge reduces your downside risk, but it also reduces your upside risk. The most important hedge most people can make is to ensure that you aren't investing in the company you work for. Let me be clear. She said, are not investing in the company you work for. Your annual income is already very linked to your employer's success. So it's a good idea to have your wealth linked to something else, anything else. Because if you invest your savings in your employer and your company fails, you're going to lose your job and your savings. By hedging, that is by putting your savings elsewhere, you'll miss out if the company you work for grows a lot but you'll still get the benefits of working for a successful company through raises and promotions. So if your company offers you company stock at a discount, it might make sense to buy it because of the discount, but then sell it as soon as you can. Don't be too loyal. And if you're really risk averse, then that discount needs to be really big to buy it at all. The point is that buying your company's stock, it's not a hedge, it's an anti-hedge. Businesses also use hedging to manage risk. 
airlines think about this a lot because fuel is a really important cost for them. That's a great example, Naz. Southwest Airlines has used hedging as a way to try to stay consistently profitable. They bet hundreds of millions of dollars that fuel prices will be high so that when fuel prices are high, the hedge is going to offset their higher cost of fuel. Finally, if you want to reduce your risk, you can gather information to help you make the best decision. Recall that you said if you wear a t-shirt under your sweatshirt and carry a waterproof coat, then you're ready for both warm weather and for rain. Well, you know what you could do instead, Justin? What? You could check out the weather forecast to make sure that you dress appropriately for the forecast. That sounds like a really simple example. It's utterly obvious when you just said it, Betsy, but you'd be surprised at just how many risks simply reflect someone having a lack of information. For example, starting a business is risky, but you can lower the risks and make better decisions if you research the market and find out about demand for your product and more details about your costs, relevant information about your rivals, the state of the market in general, and much more. Gathering more information reduces the risk you take on and also helps you make better choices. I feel like making good decisions about risk and uncertainty is really important. So what are some lessons we can take away? When you're evaluating risk, don't think about the financial payoff. Think about what it'll do to your well-being or utility. The second thing is there's a bunch of things you can do to reduce risk. And we went through some of those today that you can apply in your own life. So at the end of today's episode, you got one big choice. Continue making decisions about risk the way you always have and risk making bad choices or use the tools from today to start making better decisions betsy justin thank you i'm going to be very very careful next time someone suggests heads or tails to me 